We are coming to the end of our series in Jonah this morning. So for the past three weeks, uh, we've been reading through this fascinating tale. Uh, it's one of the coolest stories in the Bible about this flighty prophet who does everything that he can to get away, to run away from God's call in his life, to tell a wicked city, Nineveh, that they need to turn from their evil ways and turn back to God. So just to quickly recap to where we are in this story, God comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to tell Nineveh to turn from their evil ways or I'm going to destroy the entire city. And Jonah just says, nope, not doing that. And he runs the opposite direction as fast as he can, jumps a ship for Tarshish heading towards Spain. And uh, God's like, no, that's not happening. And so God sends a mighty storm, a tempest, as soon as Jonah sets out to sea. And uh, Jonah... Uh, ends up basically getting thrown overboard because he's like, look guys, I know it's my fault that this storm's here. I'm running from God. And so the sailors, you know, throw him overboard. But God still has mercy on Jonah, appoints a fish, a giant fish, who swallows Jonah. Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days. And the fish gets sick of Jonah, spits him up onto the shore. And then God's like, okay, Jonah, let's try this again. Like I said, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to them what I told you to say. And so Jonah goes, well, I guess I don't feel like being in the belly of a fish anymore. So he obeys and he proclaims this message of repentance that we talked about last week. And the city of Nineveh all in accord, they repent. They turn from their evil ways and God relents of the disaster that he had said he was going to bring upon Nineveh and they are saved. And so that is where we are today. Now, you would think that that would be the end of the story, right? Happy ending. Everybody's happy, right? Nineveh is saved. God gets to, gets to bestow his mercy and his forgiveness on the people. And Jonah would be thrilled that he got to be used uh, as a part of God's plan. But we're going to discover that that's not the case at all. We're actually going to discover that Jonah's not happy one bit. In fact, he basically throws a big temper tantrum. I mean, one of the most childish uh, chapters in the entire Bible we're going to see. I told you at the beginning of the series that the book of Jonah in the entire Bible, by the way, is about God. All right? It's not really about Jonah. God wants you and me and Jonah to know him and to be like him because we were made in God's image. And the reason this story isn't finished yet is because Jonah still has some, some wrong ideas about God and he still has a bad attitude about other people. Now, right off the bat, I want to give you one of the keys, uh, key lessons from Jonah chapter 4. Okay, here it is. Here's one of the key lessons from Jonah chapter 4. God wants to change our hearts, not just our actions. God wants to change our hearts, not just our actions. Jonah has already done what God told him to do, right? Jonah did what God told him to do, but he clearly, we're going to see in chapter 4, he clearly did it begrudgingly. He didn't go warn Nineveh to, to repent because his heart was just so broken for these poor people. He went because he didn't feel like spending three more days inside a stinky fish. That's why Jonah went. Teenagers, you can relate to this. And adults, you can also relate to this when you reflect back onto your time as a teenager. Confession time. I did not clean my room or take the trash out because I was overflowing with thankfulness for all that my parents had done for me, including bringing me into the world. I did it because I didn't want to get my Nintendo taken away. I did it because I didn't want to get grounded. It wasn't because I was just 
just looking for ways that I could show them my gratitude for all that I had done, right? The problem with this kind of obedience, though, and we tend to do this a lot, is that it doesn't flow from love, does it? It flows really from selfishness. If we think about it, we obey not because uh, you know, we love other people, but because it's in our own best interest to obey. I call this Santa Claus syndrome. Now, uh, some of you guys may have heard the song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. All right? Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Can I just let you in on a little secret? I don't like that song. Don't like the song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Aside from being a creepy song, I mean... Do you really want like some old man in a suit who eats too many cookies watching you while you sleep? I don't. <laughs> Aside from being a creepy song, this is a great way to blackmail your kid into good behavior for a few weeks, right? But it's a terrible way to relate to God. It's a terrible way to relate to God. Here's the summary. Do good things, get presents. Don't do good things, do bad, get coal in your stocking. This is nothing more than moral outward conformity. And it's dishonest and it really ignores the real problem. You see, here's the, the problem with Santa Claus Christianity. The problem with it is that God summed up the entire law with this one command. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The failure for human beings to do that is what is wrong with the world. Did you know that? Because we do not love God with all of our heart, and because we do not love our neighbor as ourself, that's where all the brokenness around us comes from. All goes back to that. Jesus did not say, love yourself with all of your heart by slavishly obeying my commands so I don't smoke you with a lightning bolt. But that's how we act like God is sometimes, isn't it? Don't we? I mean, we, we think that, well, if I do bad things, then God's going to somehow just bring my world crashing down on me. And if I do good things, then I'm going to get blessed. When we don't love the Lord with our whole heart, we won't love other people. And that's Jonah's problem. Jonah, remember, Jonah's a religious man. Uh, we, it's easy to pick on Jonah. It's easy to really you know, just point out all the flaws in Jonah. But he was a religious man who kept the law. But Jonah had some things that he loved more than God. And that's what's keeping him from showing mercy to Nineveh. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. Uh, it's on page 551 in the Blue Bible in front of you. So uh, if you want, you can take one of those Blue Bibles and open up to page 551. And it's Jonah chapter 4. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to look and see that there's two things that Jonah loves more than God. And then we're going to look at God's response to that. We're going to look at how God responds to Jonah. And we're going to see that if we love these things more than God, it'll also keep us from having God's heart to show mercy towards other people. We're going to see that it's actually impossible to love other people if we love these two things more than God. Alright, so Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Let's start reading uh, the first part. Let's read the first half of the story, and then we're going to talk about it, and we'll get to the second half later. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, what displeased Jonah exceedingly? Well, let's go back to chapter 3, verse 10. What God saw, when God saw what Nineveh did, that Nineveh repented, 
how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. How terrible of God, right? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So the truth is out. Jonah's motives are finally exposed. If you'll remember, in chapter 1, whenever God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, he didn't, give, he didn't say anything. He didn't even answer God. He didn't say no. He didn't make an excuse. He just bounced, right? He just jumped on the first ship to Tarshish, and he was gone straight to Spain. Didn't say anything. But now we're starting to see the reason behind Jonah's flight. Jonah's greatest fears are being revealed. Okay? Nineveh has repented and Jonah is mad. He's steaming mad. In fact, the, the word angry in Hebrew, when it says that Jonah was angry, it literally, it's the literal word that means heat. So he was hot with anger. Now it begs a question. What in the world is wrong with this dude? What's wrong with this guy? What kind of jerk gets mad that a city was not destroyed, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't it make more sense if, if he got mad because an entire city was destroyed, right? What's wrong with him? Now, before you jump down Jonah's throat, let's remember our context, okay? Jewish worshipers, uh, when they would read through, uh, they used to read through the book of Jonah at certain times a year, and they had a tradition where they would... Uh, they would um, repeat a phrase uh, after they finished each passage that, and they would say, I am Jonah. All right? So I want you guys to, to, to say that with me. All right? Say, I am Jonah. One, two, three. I am Jonah. All right? Remember today that we are Jonah. Okay? Let's not be too quick to point out the speck in Jonah's eye and ignore the two by four that's in our own eye. All right? So remember the context. Jonah's a prophet from God. He's a part of God's people in Nineveh. They're part of the Assyrian Empire. We talked about how wicked these people were. And they did some really bad things to Jonah's people. Okay? They raped, they pillaged, they murdered. Probably some of the very people that Jonah knew. Right? So, not only that, but they were still a threat to, to Israel's security. See, Nineveh's survival was not a good thing long term for Israel. Nineveh's survival meant that Israel had another formidable enemy that was still there. So in Jonah's eyes, Jonah can't understand why in the world, if God, God, if you love your people, if you love me, why would you allow these people who could potentially destroy us, why would you allow them to live? So Jonah's real concern here is that God has done the wrong thing. He sees injustice on God's part. In verse 1, uh, where it says, says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, what it literally says is that this thing was exceedingly evil to Jonah. So Jonah, th catch this, Jonah looked at what God did and said, that's evil. What you just did, God, is evil. Talk about pride, right? Can I just say, just a quick aside, if you and God are looking at the exact same thing and your attitudes towards that thing are diametrically opposed, guess who's wrong? 
and it's not God. So what's behind this? Jonah's heart isn't right. Jonah's heart's not right. So let's get specific. Let's look at the things that Jonah loved more than God. First of all, Jonah loved his own righteousness more than God. Have you ever gotten mad at God because you feel that good things are happening to bad people and bad things are happening to good people? Ever seen that? It's funny, uh, I've never heard someone make that complaint who would put themselves into the bad people category. Have you? Seems like everybody that makes that complaint assumes that, well, but I'm one of the good people, right? And that's what Jonah's doing. He's complaining that God is giving good things to bad people, which is bad for him. There's just one problem, though. You guys remember chapter 2? Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, when he's in the belly of the whale, he, he, he prays, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's got a very short memory. It wasn't just long ago that Jonah himself was suffering the consequences for his disobedience and that he experienced God's deliverance in his own life. And God rescued him through swallowing him by pointing a well to swallow him and then spitting him back up onto shore. Jonah seems to have forgotten this. And not to mention, just a few verses later, we're going to see in, in verse 6 um, that God appoints a plant to, to save him from the evil of the heat. So obviously, Jonah's got a double standard. He's okay with his sins being parted, pardoned, but not with Nineveh's. Part of what spawns this pride, this double standard, is that we tend to minimize our own sins and magnify the sins of others. In our eyes, let's be honest, in our eyes, the worst kind of sin that someone could commit is a sin against us, isn't it? That's the worst sin somebody could commit. Better not mess with me. Better not step on my ego. I can neither confirm nor deny this report, but there have been times when I acted like the person who cut me off in traffic deserved a life sentence. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, don't you just hate it when people cut you off in traffic? That should be a capital offense, in my opinion. But, but I'm quick to give a good reason whenever I've cut someone else off, right? Well, I, I didn't see him there. I didn't see him. It was an accident. When someone cuts me off, no mercy. None. Straight to jail. Here's the thing. When we think that our righteousness or God's favor is based on our own performance, we naturally start to see other people as competition. Okay? When we see our righteousness, when we think our righteousness is based on our own performance, we don't see people in need of God's compassion. We see other people as competition. Catch that. That's key, alright? That's one of the reasons that it's impossible for us if we are self-righteous to truly love other people, to have mercy on other people. You may have heard the story before, there's two people, two guys in the woods, and they come across a grizzly bear, and the guy looks at his buddy, and he, and he says, do you think you can outrun it? And his buddy says, I don't need to outrun the grizzly bear, I just need to outrun you. Right? That's the mentality we take. I just need to outrun the guy next to me. If I can outrun you guys, if I can do a little bit more good than you, if I can be a little bit more righteous in God's eyes than you are, then whatever. Sorry, bro. Sorry about you. I'm good. I don't know about you, right? Self-righteousness may be one of the, 
the most dangerous sins because it often goes undetected. Most self-righteous people would never admit that they're self-righteous. And many of them don't even know that they're self-righteous. They think that they're doing the right thing. Beware of sleeping through this portion of the sermon thinking to yourself, oh, this doesn't apply to me. If that's your attitude, then there's a good chance that it does apply to you. Here's a great indicator of whether you struggle with pride. All right, It's, it's like, a, um, like a meter or a warning light on your dashboard. A critical spirit. A critical spirit is the warning light on your dash that you may struggle with pride. Are you critical of coworkers, classmates, how other people parent, other churches or ministries? A self-righteous, critical spirit is never wrong in his own eyes. He's always right. He usually doesn't keep friends around for too long because, again, it's hard to love others when you're in competition with them. And we clearly see this with Jonah. He's so wrapped up in it that he has the audacity to call God's actions evil. It's impossible for someone who works for God's favor to be merciful. All right, so let's move on to the second thing. Jonah loved his own righteousness more than God, and Jonah's second problem is that Jonah loved comfort more than God. Jonah loved comfort more than God. So Jonah's very way of life was threatened, and that was not okay. Here's, here's why Jonah's way of life was threatened. Nineveh's deliverance meant that Israel's enemies had a chance to recover. And Israel's enemies had a chance to recover. Of first importance for Jonah was making sure that he covered his own rear end. That's what Jonah was concerned about. Essentially, Jonah was thinking, if extending mercy to another becomes a threat to what I love most, then it is evil. It's evil if it's not good for me. And comfort is one of a myriad of idols that we can have in our lives. But it's especially prevalent here in the West, here in Canada, where we live. We live in ease and luxury that most of the world just can't even begin to fathom. Idols are not just carvings or statues that you put on a mantle or they're found in a temple. A lot of times we read through the Bible and we see idols and we just quickly pass over those passages because we think that, well, that was for them back then. I don't worship idols. I'm good. But the reality is, is that we all have idols that we deal with in our lives. Tim Keller says that if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. Let me repeat that. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, or your identity, then that thing is an idol. A good way to test this would be, and I think this question is going to be up behind me, a good way to test what your idols are is to fill in the blank on this sentence. If I lost blank, I would lose my meaning to live. What would you put in that blank? It could be athletic prowess. It could be good looks. It could be your income level. It could be your boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be your reputation. It could even be your spouse or your kids. We can make an idol out of anything. If we say this, 
If, if we can put fill in the blank with one of those things in there, if there's something other than God that we would put in that blank, it's because we have made that thing rather than God the foundation to our happiness and our contentment. That thing is the foundation. If we don't lose anything else, we cannot lose that thing. That thing is of ultimate importance. While some of those things may be good things, they're good things, many of them are, if we make them ultimate things, then we make them an idol. Here's how Romans chapter 1 verse 25 puts it. Paul's writing about humanity and he says, They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshipped and served the things that God had created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. All good things come to us from God. But part of how sin twists and distorts God's good creation is that it convinces us to take good things that God has given us and and it convinces us to make them ultimate things. And we begin to worship them and we long for them and we desire them and we grieve when we lose those things and we don't give a second thought to the giver. That's idolatry. It's just as prevalent today as it was when the book of Jonah was written. There's a University of Oxford research project that found uh, that there were around 10,000 suicides from the year 2008 to 2010 related to the financial collapse. If you remember the great financial collapse that started in 08, many, many people lost a lot of their wealth. And around 10,000 of them committed suicide related to that financial collapse. Their wealth was their foundation. When they lost that, they lost their reason to live. When we love comfort more than God, it's impossible to have mercy on others. You know, sometimes I wonder how many people have never heard the gospel that could have heard the gospel because I loved my comfort zone. That's proof number one. And it's really all the proof that we need that the idolatry of comfort prevents us and prevents God's people from showing mercy. There are millions of people who, if it were not for the love of comfort, would have heard the gospel by now. There are tens of thousands of Christians who, if it were not for the love of comfort, would right now be on the mission field. Security blankets are wet blankets on the flame of God's love and on evangelism. When we love comfort more than God, we'll choose personal comfort over, every other, over other people every single time. So, what is the solution to these problems that Jonah had and that very po- quite possibly some of us have here this morning? What was God's response? I know this might come as a shock, but God's response is the gospel. Let's look at verses 5 to 11 and read the rest of the story. And, and there's some pretty humorous parts to the end of the story. Starting in verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. 
But God said to Jonah, do you well, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this part just cracks me up. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So God encounters Jonah in the wilderness. You remember the first time Jonah gets a lesson from God? It's in the wind and the waves. Now it's in the wilderness, another harsh atmosphere. And God gave Jonah a little taste of the jo judgment that Jonah wished upon Nineveh. This tells us something. It tells us that God often reveals our hearts by stripping away our comforts. If you've been going through a season where you feel like God is stripping away comfort, stripping away things that you've depended on, things that you love, it may be that God is trying to work on your heart right now and expose some things. He's trying to show you maybe where your idols are in your life. Our idols and our prejudices are revealed during these times, uh, often in the wilderness. And, and what God does with Jonah is he gives Jonah an object lesson involving a plant, a worm, and the wind. So Jonah is hot. Right? So God appoints a plant to protect him from the elements. Verse 6 says that uh, God appointed this plant to save Jonah from his discomfort. That word discomfort, it's the Hebrew word, again, for evil. You notice that word evil keeps coming up over and over again. It's the same evil that we saw in chapter 3, verse 10, where Nineveh repented of their evil, and God saved them from their evil. And now we're seeing that God saved Jonah from his evil. Same word. Now this is cool. This is where the, the literary master, mastery of Jonah comes in. Uh, if you've never heard of this term, there's a term called double entendre, which means that there's a double meaning. Okay? The, the surface meaning, when it says that God appointed this plant to save Jonah from his evil, was that he was literally saving Jonah from the evil of the heat. But he was also saving Jonah from the evil that was in his heart. The same evil that God saved Nineveh from in chapter 3. See, Jonah wasn't that much different from Nineveh after all. Now Jonah was, what was his response? He was exceedingly glad for God's mercy on him. And you remember what was his response for God's mercy on Nineveh? He was exceedingly angry. We're seeing tons of double standards here in Jonah's life. So what does God do? God appoints a worm that devours the plant and he sends a hot east wind. Again, here comes that word heat that also means angry. So God sends the heat of his anger onto Jonah, the very anger that Jonah wanted poured out on Nineveh. So what is God trying to teach Jonah through this object lesson? Three things real quick that I want to go through. Number one, God's teaching Jonah that everyone is equally undeserving of his mercy. Everyone is equally undeserving of his mercy. Jonah, if you'll notice in verse 5, Jonah built a shelter from him, for himself, but apparently Jonah's shelter wasn't good enough. It was not an adequate shelter. Jonah built a booth, a shelter to save him from the disaster of the heat, to save him from the evil of the elements. But God had to come in and give Jonah a better shelter. The point is that Jonah couldn't save himself with his own righteousness. He needed God's mercy for salvation. 
The irony is that Jonah did not believe this. He thought he deserved God's salvation and that Nineveh didn't. There's an old ivory soap ad. Ivory Soap is a soap company and they used to boast that uh, ivory soap kills 99.4% of bacteria. Well, that's really good for soap, but when it comes to righteousness, it's good, but it's not good enough. God demands 100% righteousness, not 99.4% righteousness. We may be able to change our outer behavior like Jonah did, but we cannot change our hearts. Only God can change our hearts. The second thing that God teaches Jonah and that God teaches us through this object lesson is that God's mercy comes by His grace alone. Since we cannot make ourselves clean, that means that our only hope is God. If God does not save us, then all hope is lost. So Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 44, He said, No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. Did you know that you can't even look to God and see your need for Him on your own? You need His grace just to help you do that. Just to do that. Nobody can look to God. Nobody can even see their need for God unless God opens their eyes. Unless God helps them. That's why Jesus said that we must be born again. Being born again is something that happens to us. It's not something that we do. It's something that's done to us. We must become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 says. And a new creation, listen to me guys, a new creation is not a better start. It's a new birth that happens when the Spirit of God fills your life and transforms you. I can't say this enough. The grace of God is not just something that's received at the beginning of your Christian walk. So many times we look at Christianity as this thing where we receive God's grace at the start and then it's up to us to start improving our lives and to become a better person. The new birth is something that happens when the Spirit of God fills your life and the Spirit of God begins to transform you from the inside out. There's a word, there's a lot of repetition in this story and one word that gets repeated a lot is the word appointed. You probably, you may have noticed it, it's, it's three times in chapter 4. In Jonah, God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. He appointed the plant in verse 6. He appointed the worm to eat the plant. He appointed a hot east wind. What's the point? What's, what's Jonah trying to tell us here? The point is that God's mercy cannot be bought or earned or bartered for or won, achieved. It's a gift that He dispenses as He wills. He's the one that appoints. He's the one that appoints everything. And He does desire to, to dispense His mercy to you because He loves the people that He's made in His image. Look at how God makes this point to Jonah in verse 10. Verse 10 it says, The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and then perished. God's saying, Jonah, you had nothing to do with this plant. You did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to make it happen. It came up solely by my good grace and solely by my mercy and because I love you. And you're pitying that and then you are going to dare to rebuke me because I, out of my sovereign will, also want to extend mercy to the entire city of Nineveh? And you're going to get mad over this plant that you did nothing to earn? And then you're going to say you're going to withhold mercy from these other people? 
Last week we talked about how even repentance is a gift from God. And Ephesians 2 says that our faith is a gift from God. So if repentance and faith are a gift from God, if we did nothing to earn mercy, how could we go and try to make others earn mercy? You see, if we haven't earned God's mercy, we shouldn't make others earn it. It's only when we start to understand this that we're going to have God's heart to extend mercy to others. The last thing that God teaches Jonah is that God's mission to extend mercy is global in scale. Look at verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You notice that the story ends on a cliffhanger. There's not a verse 12. It just kind of stops right in the middle of the story. And the reason, that's purposeful by the way, the point is for you, the reader, to ask yourself, what will I do? What am, what am I going to do? We don't know what Jonah did. We don't know if ultimately Jonah's heart changed and Jonah realized that, wow, I've been a selfish jerk. Maybe I shouldn't be this mean to other people. Right? Maybe I should realize that I've been saved by grace and God's mercy and I shouldn't try to make others earn it. We don't know what Jonah did. But in the end, it doesn't really matter what Jonah did. What matters is what are you going to do in response? Let me just be frank. If there's no desire in you to join God in his global mission to extend his mercy to others, then you still don't know God's heart. You still got some learning to do when it comes to God's heart, just like Jonah. That's at the very essence of his heart. God pities sinners. He pities sinners so much that he sent his perfect son Jesus to brutally suffer and to die in their place. That's amazing. Just think about that. This is a city, Nineveh is a city full of wicked people who have ignored God, they've hated his ways, and yet God, in his mercy, pities them. He has compassion on them. And you know what? God has compassion on our city too. The city of Oshawa may be full of people who don't know God. It may, there may be 98% of the people here who are not walking with God, who use God's name in vain, who celebrate the things that God hates. But guess what? No matter how much they do that, even if they continue to rebel against Him over and over and over again, God has compassion on our city. He loves them. And He longs to extend His mercy to them. But He extends His mercy to people through who? Through you, Right? Yeah, Jesus through you guys. We can selfishly go in our comfort zone like Jonah, or we can go and tell these people about God's mercy that he offers to those who will repent. And it's going to mean laying down our love of our own righteousness. Because as long as we think that we're better than the next guy, we won't look at others with compassion but as competition. We won't look at the city around us, the city that's lost and dying without Christ, as sinners in need of God's grace. We'll look at them as competition. And we'll think, at least when I die, I'm going to look better in God's eyes than they did. You can't have mercy on people when we think like that. And here's why we don't have to think like that. Jesus, the true righteous one, the only one who had any right to exalt himself, instead chose to humble himself. 
He humbled himself and he became a man and he humbled himself to death on a cross for you and for me. And he died the death that you and I deserved. And so if you are in Christ, your sentence has already been carried out. Jesus took it when he died on the cross. But remember, you didn't earn that mercy, so don't make others earn it. Instead, give it away. Is there someone that you haven't forgiven? By your unforgiveness, you're pronouncing judgment on them. You're not showing God's heart. Forgive your enemies. Do you have a critical spirit? Are you always seeing the bad in other people? Try this. Take some time this week and really think. I mean, really think. And write down a list of all the sins that you can think of that God has forgiven you of. All the sins that you've committed that God has forgiven you of. It'll be a humbling exercise, but it'll also soften you and it'll help you to see that really you aren't any different from Nineveh after all. Extending God's mercy to others is also going to take laying aside our comforts. We can't join God on his mission of mercy if we love our comfort more than God. And Jesus didn't concern himself with comfort. He didn't shield himself even though he had every right to shield himself. Jesus knew that the cross was the only way. And if we're going to follow Jesus, the cross is the only way for us too. If you're going to have God's heart, then your personal comfort must be crucified on the cross of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something, it's worth it. The reward is great. When we give our lives away to bring God's good news of mercy to others, it shows that we are His children. Listen to Mark 10, 29-31. This is what Jesus says for those who give themselves away, who crucify their comfort. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Where's your comfort zone? Are you afraid that you're going to lose relationships with your family if you share the gospel with them? And trust them to God. Whoever loses mother or father or houses or land for my name's sake and for the gospel will receive a hundredfold now in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Better for you to lose your relationship with them in this life than for your family to lose their relationship with God eternally because you did not speak up. Is your comfort zone your reputation at school? Well, what's more valuable, your reputation at school or the souls of your classmates? Whatever small suffering you might incur in this life, be assured that you will be comforted by God for eternity. Starting in January, we're going to be doing a uh, church-wide evangelism every Sunday at 2 o'clock. It's going to be open to everybody in the church. It's not something you're going to have to feel obligated to come to every week. But 
If you want to get engaged in the mission of God, then that's something that you can come and do with us. And we'll be doing that on Sundays at 2 o'clock starting in January. That's a great way for you to apply what God's been speaking to you about. If you feel like you haven't been extending mercy to others, that you haven't been involved in God's global mission to extend His mercy, well, here's your first step. Join us on Sundays at 2 o'clock. It'll be starting in January. So, whether you're struggling with self-righteousness this morning or whether you're realizing that you've made personal comfort your God, regardless, even if it's not one of those two things, whatever it is that's keeping you from extending God's mercy to others and having God's heart, I want you this morning to be able to lay that down. And we're going to have a time of response. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And um, during the Lord's Supper, uh, this is a time for you to, uh, to speak to God uh, to confess sin to God and to reflect upon Jesus and upon what He's done for you. And you know what? If you, if you are feeling convicted and you're feeling like there's sin in your life, then guess what? This is a great time to reflect and remember that even though you've sinned, Jesus' body was broken for you. And he, yes, even though we're guilty, we're not really guilty because the blood of Jesus was shed for us and covers us. So rejoice. Be thankful during this time as we participate in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite uh, Curtis and Josiah to come up and, and get ready. Uh, and Curtis is going to be playing uh, with some background music. And we're going to enter into a time of, of response now. And so we do the Lord's Supper to remember and to proclaim Jesus, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for us. Now, I want to make clear, if you are not a follower of Jesus, okay, if you have not made Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life, then please do not partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, as this is reserved for those who have trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. If this is you, there's something better than the supper that you can receive this morning. You can receive Jesus Christ this morning. So if you are not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you, don't partake of the Lord's Supper, but I would encourage you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning so that you can start partaking in the Lord's Supper with us in the future and so that you can receive forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And for those of you who are receiving the Supper, use this time to reflect. All right? Reflect. Don't just rush through it. Are you struggling with sin? Confess your sin to God and remember that the blood of Christ washes it away. Have you been self-righteous? Remember that it took the death of the perfect Lamb of God to forgive you of your sins.